0: 1 Peter 3, 8-22. through 22. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you are called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days... baptism which corresponds to this now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels authorities and powers having been subjected to him
1: I read this book college a long time ago, but just recently we read it. Um, It's called The Insanity of Obedience by Nick Ripken. Um, So Nick, it's not his real name, but he was a former missionary um, in the Middle East and I believe Northern Africa as well. Um, But now he's kind of written a few books and he travels around essentially documenting the persecuted church. Um, He's interviewing people, um, just trying to go to places where it's very hard to be a Christian, to pastor a church, and kind of experience what they experience and write about it so that people like us can can read through it and experience it. So in this particular passage, he's visiting a group of pastors in Russia um, who are facing intense suffering, persecution for their faith, and, and he picks up their He says this, he says, I said to this gathered group of pastors, there's one thing I don't understand. You have told me so many remarkable stories about what God has done. You've told me about unspeakable suffering. You've told me about grievous persecution. And you've told me about God's power to work through these things. But why haven't you written these stories down? Why haven't you published these? The pastors seemed genuinely confused by my questions. Finally, an older pastor took me aside took me by the arm, and led me to a large window on the east side of the home. Tell me, Dr. Ripken, the the pastor asked, how many times have you awakened your sons before dawn and taken them to the east-facing part of your home? How many times have you said to them, boys, get ready, look out this window because the sun's about to come up. Boys, I woke you up early today because I wanted you to see it. It's about to happen. How many times have you awakened your boys and said that to them? Well, I answered, I've never done that. In fact, my sons would think I was crazy if I did that. The old pastor nodded as if a profound point had been made. However, I could see no connection to our earlier conversation. Sensing my confusion, he went on to explain, you would never do that with your sons because the sun coming up in the east is normal and ordinary. It's an everyday event. It's expected. Well, that's the way persecution is for us. That's the way God's activity is for us. We don't write much about these things. We don't even talk much about these things because these things are as normal as the sun coming up in the east. Now, I'm sure many of you in this room recognize that there are Christians around the world who suffer for their faith. Um, I don't think many of us are ignorant to that fact. We know that it exists. Um, But my goal this morning is not to make you more aware of Christian persecution around the world. Although I hope you are, I hope you hear stories like this and you wanna pray for brothers and sisters who are facing persecution, even now as they're maybe meeting together. My goal also um, is not to push you out of your context here so you might go to a place where you will suffer physically for the gospel. Although I hope many of you do that. I'd be overjoyed to hear of some of you going and doing that, although that's not my goal this morning. My goal this morning is to show you that suffering is a normal part of the Christian life, even when it may not be intense government opposition toward practicing your faith. And our text today, I think, is the perfect application of this because as far as we know, the audience that Peter was writing to was not facing physical persecution. Rather, they were facing verbal abuse. They were being slandered for what they believed in. They're facing discrimination for their faith. So I hope this passage can show us this morning what it looks like to face these things as a believer. Certainly, much of this is applicable if you're suffering physical persecution, but the context of 1 Peter is those who are being slandered for what they believe, which I think many of us can relate to. So this passage begins in verse 8. Peter starts out, finally all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Now the beginning of this where he says, finally all of you, this points us toward, finally, he's wrapping something up. And this is the previous section that began back in chapter two. So I wanna just spend a second kind of recapping what this finally is referencing. Peter begins this section by telling these believers how to live under Roman rule. He tells them to submit to the authority that they are living under. And as we learned about in previous weeks, this was not an endorsement of everything Rome was doing at the time. This was an acknowledgement that just as Christ also suffered under rulers who were sometimes unjust, so these Christians should also submit to those unjust rulers And if you were here last week, Evan walked through this passage with these ideas about slavery and marriage dynamics for us. And what I appreciated so much about what Evan did is he brought us right into the cultural context, which we'll continue on with today. He talked about how both Christian slaves and wives were living in households where the patriarch of the family was not a believer. And the expectation at that time was everyone in that household, slaves and wives included, would worship the gods that the husband, the patriarch of the family, worshipped. So Peter is addressing this, not saying that, hey, this is a good and moral way to live your life, but he's saying, hey, the answer to these dynamics, it's not rebellion. It's not an uprising within the home. The answer is love and serve your master, love and serve your husband as unto the Lord. And the hope that Peter gave these believers is that this upside down way of living will bring those people to see the beauty of of the gospel. So in verse eight eight and nine, he's summarizing essentially this story. Now, verse eight I think is fairly obvious. We don't have to spend a lot of time breaking down why these things are good. Have unity of mind, have sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, a humble mind. Not many of you would argue against these things. If you have children, um, you want them to look at this list and follow it. Like, this isn't extremely controversial to carry on these traits, but keep in mind, this letter is addressed to Christians who are suffering, so when we put these traits into that context, they take on a new meaning, right? Like, it's much harder to show sympathy, brotherly love, tender heart, humility to those who are slandering you. So as we think through these things, this isn't loving people who love you. We see over and over in Scripture, like, that's easy. Like, what is it if you just love back someone who's treating you awesome, but it's a whole other thing to show brotherly love and tenderness and sympathy to someone who's persecuting you? And now telling these believers, finally, put on these things, um, Peter goes on and lays out an argument in verse 9. Um, And I want us to kind of look through this argument methodically. I think it's really helpful to lay it out in this way. The first thing he says is, do not repay evil for evil. So we see here, this is a negative command. He's telling these believers, don't do this. When evil is done against you, do not repay evil. But then, he moves on to a positive command. So he's not telling them, hey, just don't do anything. He's telling them, don't repay evil for evil, but actually, on the contrary, bless. So when you're being slandered, when evil's being done against you, um, the solution is not run away, avoid the problem. The solution is, hey, don't repay evil for evil, but actually bless that person who's doing evil against you. Now, if he stopped here, that would be plenty, That would be plenty of us, that'd be a command, okay, I know I'm not supposed to do evil against that person, I'm supposed to bless them. But I'm so grateful he doesn't stop here because he moves on and he gives us a reason for this. He says, don't repay evil for evil, but bless because for this you were called. So there's a greater purpose in blessing those who do evil against you. He's saying this is what you were intended to do. This is why Christ died for you so you would go and do this. And even further beyond that, he doesn't just give the reason. He gives the result of acting in this way. And the result of this is so that you may obtain a blessing. So he continues on um, in verse 10. And I think verse 10, this quote of a Psalm, of Psalm 34, really helps us like, understand what this blessing is. So the blessing that Peter's describing in verse nine is described here. It says, this blessing is essentially to love life, to see good days, and to have the eyes of the Lord upon you. The Lord will hear your prayers. Like These are are all great things. These are all things I'm sure that we all desire. Now sometimes, um, I think we can have a bit of a knee-jerk reaction to passages like this, especially those of us um, who kind of, hold to a rich theological view of how salvation works, right? We, we read a passage like this and we're like, hold on, like, this sounds like I need to do something to earn God's favor. This sounds like if I just really love people and do good stuff, God will give me this. This is like the cosmic slot machine God who I just put it in and I get the thing out. Like, this doesn't sound like a God of grace. And let me affirm, yes, salvation is by grace alone. We can preach a whole sermon on that, on how salvation works. Yes, it's, it's by grace. It's not by our works. It's through faith. But I think it might be helpful to think about it like this. Imagine that I gifted you with a car. Um, you didn't buy it from me. I just handed you the keys. You did nothing to earn it. You didn't pay me anything or do me a favor. Um, this was a totally free gift, now, you're probably pretty excited that you got this amazing gift. I'm sure you're grateful. I, I hope you're grateful I gave you a car. But over the months and years of owning this car, things start to go wrong. Um, it doesn't steer like it used to. The engine's knocking around. The brakes are squealing. Um, you hide your plane in a light rain because you've never changed the tires. Um, now, what you've neglected to do is there's a little book in the glove compartment probably, and there's a page in that book that gives you everything you're supposed to do to maintain this car. There's actually like a checklist of do this, do this, do this, change the oil here, get an inspection to make sure there's no bigger problems, change your tires at this, change your brakes at this. There's a little book that tells you everything to do. See, I gave you this gift as a free gift, but the creator of this gift actually created a list of items for you to do to ensure that this gift remains a blessing to you. And when you neglect this list, what you're doing is you're trying to use this gift in a way for which it was not intended. Now, of course, no analogy is perfect. Me gifting you a car is a little different than the gift of eternal life, but I think it does help show us the argument that Peter is making here. If you follow the commands of the God of the universe who rescued you from death and hell, Things are going to go better for you. Um, this, this just like logically makes sense to us. So, so don't let this pull you into a pitfall of like, well, I have to do these good things to earn God's blessing. Like this is how God created the world to work and he's welcoming us into it in passages like this. So this shouldn't bring about like guilt and oh, I'm not doing enough. Like this should bring about, man, I'm so glad that God has provided a way for me to live and told me how to do this. And this is actually very, very good news for us. Passages like this are the foundation for our confidence in God's ultimate justice. For those who do evil, for those who harm others, for those who disobey God, his face is not upon them. He is against them. But for those who do good, who do what is good and seek after the Lord, his face is on them. He hears their prayers. Things will be well for them. But before we move on from this passage, we also need to step back and consider, once again, the audience. He's writing to Christians who are suffering persecution for their faith. So when Peter describes the blessing they'll obtain, when he's saying, you'll see good days, we have to ask the question, is he promising that they will be rewarded with an easy life? Because when we think of blessing within our culture, we immediately go to ease. We work our entire lives so that we can have a decade or hopefully two of ease, of carefreeness, of not worrying about all these things we have to worry about. We're so glad for that checklist to be gone. Our idea of blessing is easiness, no problems. So when we think of seeing good days, we think of all our problems go away. Is that what Peter is promising He's saying, hey, if you just be nice to people who persecute you, they'll stop. Is that the blessing that Peter is talking about? Well, I think the next portion of our passage answers this kind of natural question for us. Let's move on to verse 13. Peter, after this, asks this question. He says, now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Now let's step back into the shoes of these believers who Peter is writing to. Who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Well, I'm sure they would read this verse and say, lots of things. There are lots of people to harm me, Peter. Um, Actually, if you take a short look at Christian history, there's lots of people to harm those guys for doing good. If you actually look at the life of Jesus, if you would read the Gospel, Peter, there's lots of people who harmed Jesus for doing good. So it becomes evident pretty quickly here that that Peter's asking a rhetorical question. And he moves on um, in verse 14. He says, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Oftentimes in Scripture, when we think of suffering, when we hear the word suffering, we immediately go to the suffering of Paul or the suffering of Christ upon the cross um, we think of passages where Paul kind of lists out all the ways he suffers, where he was lashed a thousand times and shipwrecked and he was starving and in jail all at the same time. And, and we, we think of passages like that. But once again, 1 Peter, there are zero mentions of the physical suffering among the church. That's not to say it didn't existed, but that, that doesn't seem to be what Peter was writing toward. He was writing toward a church that was suffering verbal abuse, Discrimination for their faith. And I think for many of us in this room in our current context, being maligned by a friend or a coworker because of your faith is much more much more realistic situation than being stoned by a friend or coworker because of your faith. So Peter says, But even if you do suffer because of your faith, you will still be blessed. There is a blessing in the midst of suffering. And then we get instructions for how exactly to deal with those who are maligning these first century Christians. He says, have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. So Peter gives us a couple ways to deal with people who are slandering us. To handle the situation where we're being slandered, maligned, whatever it is for your faith. The first thing he says, have no fear of them. Don't let fear overtake you for what they could do to you. Second thing he says, don't be troubled. I think a good way to think about this is like don't let it get to you. Um, this shouldn't be like infiltrating your mind and your heart and your conscience so much that you're rattled by these people um, coming against you or talking evil against you or slandering you. you. Say don't be troubled by this. Third, he tells them to stay faithful to Christ. He's saying don't, don't forget who saved you. Don't forget why you're standing in this way. The fourth thing he encourages them to be prepared. Um, There's a lot to say here, a lot of implications here. He's telling these believers, hey, you should expect this. You shouldn't be surprised when someone maligns you for your faith or slanders you or mocks you for what you believe in. He's saying, be prepared to give an answer. Um, When they mock you, be prepared to defend your faith. But what I think is the most helpful and maybe the most challenging in this passage is the final command he gives, which is to do it with gentleness. Um, I think we can, we can read that command to be prepared to give an answer and we can immediately think, well, I gotta, I gotta have my points to debate this person and win that debate. And I don't think there's anything wrong with apologetics. There's nothing wrong with arguing for your faith and engaging in dialogue with unbelievers. But man, the biggest challenge here is to do this with gentleness. We're remembering that this is not an argument to be won. This is someone that we are aiming to love to Christ. And then he gets to verse 17, which I think serves as an emphasis to this entire point where Peter says, for it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. So this verse emphasizes the point he just made, but I I think it also serves as a check for us. This verse is kind of a moment to step back and ask, is my suffering because of my faithfulness, my faithfulness to the gospel, my faithfulness to Christ, or is my suffering just because of my sin? A few weeks ago, I flew to Southeast Asia to visit visit some missionaries that I worked with in college um, and brought a few college students along with me. I was away for two weeks, and before I left, my wise, wonderful, godly wife sat down and spoke these words to me. She said, don't do anything stupid. (laughs) And she went on to explain, she didn't just say that, she went on to explain, look, if you die, like, in a plane crash, or you're going somewhere, like, to preach the gospel in a boat, or, like, the scorpion bites you and you get a weird disease and you die, like, that's, that, that's fine. She didn't say it's fine. She, She said she'd be sad, but she essentially said, like, she could accept something happening to me if it was for the right reasons, for the right cause. But she said, if I died, like, jumping off a cliff or, like, swimming in an oceanside cave at low tide, like, she'd be upset with me. She'd still come to the funeral. Like, she wouldn't, like, slander me to our kids, but, like, deep down, it'd be, like, that's such a waste. Like, why would you die doing something stupid? And And I think this is basically what Peter is saying here, more or less, you know, paraphrasing. Um, This is a reflection back to chapter two, verse 20, where Peter says, hey, what credit is it if you sin and are beaten for it and endure? He's essentially saying like, listen, if you do something stupid and someone gets mad at you and beats you, like that's, that's not suffering for the sake of the gospel. That's your own sin that's getting in the way. He is warning these believers to not mistake consequences for their own sin as suffering for the cause of Christ. So when you're engaging with the person that's slandering you, and they get all mad at you and slander you because like, oh, they, they treated me poorly. If it was because you were standing firm in the gospel and you were, you know, speaking the gospel to that person and showing them love, awesome. But if it's because you were a jerk, and you were not gentle with that person, like, that's what Peter is talking about here. He's saying, what credit is it to you if you suffer for doing what is evil? So when it comes to suffering, we've seen a few things. We've seen what suffering is. Someone doing something evil against us, whether that be slander or gossip or physical suffering. We've seen what our response should be to endure, to stand strong, to be gentle but firm in the gospel. But now as we move on to the end of this passage, we'll start to see why Christian suffering exists. Because the natural question that these Christians are asking, and I'm sure the natural question many of you who have faced suffering have asked and maybe are asking today, is what's even the point? When you're being slandered, when you're being maligned, the question is, why should I put up with this? Um, if someone is coming up against my beliefs, if they're belittling me, if they're slandering me, I should stand up for myself. I should fight back, or at the very least, I should like, cut that person off and cut off the dead weight of my life. Like that, that's what the world tells us to do in situations like this. Hey, if someone's standing in your way, just, just cut them off. Delete their number, forget about that person, move on doing what you're doing. Why is the command to endure suffering not fight back violently or avoid it. Well, here's what Peter says. He says in this in these next verses, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared. In which, um, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. So, Peter tells us here, I think in the first four words of this section, pretty much all we need to know about the purpose of our suffering. He says, for Christ also suffered. And these four words are gonna be kind of the driving point of the rest of our time today, thinking through Christian suffering. Christian, in your suffering, you are becoming more like Christ. When you are slandered, you are entering into the slandering that he endured. When people speak evil against you, you are entering into the evil spoken against Christ. When you are accused unjustly, you are entering into the unjust accusations that Christ endured. When we, when we think of becoming like Christ, I don't think many of us think of it like this. Many of, many of us, when we think of becoming like Christ, we want like, the good qualities that Christ embodied, um, and certainly that's an excellent thing to move toward. Yes, I want you to look like Jesus, but when we think about looking like Jesus, we don't often think about suffering like Jesus suffered, but that's exactly where Peter points us. So if we keep reading, he says that Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. And this verse, like, there's, it's a crazy turnaround. There's, like, whiplash in this verse. Let's, let's work through it. At whose hands did Christ suffer? Well, he suffered at the hands of humans, of you and I, essentially. Yes, none of us were there when Christ suffered, but it was our sin that caused him to suffer. So, he suffered at our hands. And for whom did Christ suffer? Well, he suffered for the sins of human beings, of you and I. And now, who enters into and shares in the suffering of Christ? Well, you know the answer by this point it's human beings, it's you and I. So we have Christ suffering for my sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. And the purpose of this was to bring you and I to God in order that we might enter back into the suffering of Christ that we perpetuated upon him. Like there's, there's just like a circle in this verse. It's whiplash back and forth. And the most amazing part of all of this, which is the root of the gospel, is that Christ suffered in order to bring us to God. Christians refer to this as reconciliation in that we were once far from the Lord and now we've been brought back to him. We've been united with him. So now we get to verse 19. And I want to take a little bit of a side and kind of explain what's going on here. Um, I'm sure some of you read this and you're like, wait, stop for one second. Like, who are the spirits in prison? Why is Christ like dead but alive and proclaiming to them? So. Um, I, I don't want to like get too far off the road here, but I do think we need to stop and explain this verse for a second. So, this verse once again says, um, So Christ being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. So historically, there's a few different views on this passage. I don't have time to like analyze all those views. You can find plenty later if you want. Um, But I do want to give you the view that I think is most faithful to Scripture as a whole. So there's an event in Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 5, where there are some fallen angels on the earth who essentially found human women attractive and took them as wives and had children with them. So God looked down on this perversion and the text said that it grieved him and he punished these angelic beings for this. Jude, verse six, tells us this. It says, the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, so they came down from the heavenlies and um, took these human women as wives. Those angels, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. So, you might initially see this passage and think, well, this is referring to like humans in some kind of purgatory and Christ is coming to preach to them. But I think what's most consistent with scripture, and there's other reasons for this that I won't get into right now in this context, the most consistent thing to say is that these are actually angelic beings and this is a reference back to that story in Genesis chapter 6. But The point of this passage isn't to get hung up on this one point. Peter wasn't bringing this up to like throw in some like theological knowledge that he had of Genesis. The point of Peter even bringing this up is to show us that although Christ's body was dead, his spirit was very much alive. And then in verse 20, he references this biblical event of the great flood. And if you're not familiar with this event, it can be found in Genesis 6 through 8. And what really kicked it off was what I just referenced in Genesis chapter 6. At this point, the world was full of corruption, including this event with these fallen angels coming down, but there was much more corruption on the earth. So much so that in Genesis 6-5, it says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. This is like as bad as it gets. Like, I can think of a more devastating verse than that. So, because of all this, God decided to flood the entire earth, but he looked upon Noah and his family and decided to spare them because they were faithful toward him. So, this is where our passage says that these eight persons were brought safely through the water. That's referencing Noah and his family. So, Now that Peter has set up this biblical reference, he continues on in verse 21. He says this. He says, baptism, which corresponds to this, the flood, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So he's saying baptism corresponds to this event. In the biblical event of the flood, sin was wiped clean by the water, and God spared his people by bringing them out of the water. And Peter's telling us this is a picture, this is a type of what happens in baptism. Now the first thing that might stand out to you, which is kind of the second issue we have to address in this passage and deal with, this passage says baptism saves you. And you may be thinking, hold on, once again, like I said before, I thought salvation was by faith, not by works, and not by baptism. Now, if all this passage said was baptism saves you, and he left it at that, then I might conclude, along with some other traditions, that you are not fully saved until you are baptized. But Peter was one step ahead of this thought process. Notice, in the second half of this verse, he says, baptism saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for, or for a good conscience. In other words, he's saying there's nothing magical about the process of baptism. And he almost has, kind of sounds like a sarcastic tone here. Like, this isn't a holy bath. This isn't just like getting some dirt removed from your body. Don't go thinking that something special happens by just taking a dunk in a tank unless this is, there is faith and a good appeal to God for a good conscience. So this is where we form the view um, that Ogletown holds, to. If you're a member here, this is the view of baptism that you affirm. This view says, this is from the Baptist Faith and Message, says that baptism is an act of obedience symbolizing the believer's faith in a crucified, buried, and risen Savior, the believer's death to sin, the burial of the old life, and the resurrection to walk in the newness of life in Christ Jesus. It's a testimony to his faith in the final resurrection of the dead. Being a church ordinance, it is a prerequisite to the privileges of church membership and to the Lord's Supper. And in this view of baptism, Peter gives us some connection to our suffering and how it relates to Christ. So, last week, Evan referenced this concept of the J-curve. And I'm gonna spend um, the end of our time here today kind of looking at this um, this tool as a way for us to see the life, death, suffering of Christ and how it applies to us. So essentially what you're seeing here is a picture of the life of Jesus Christ. Christ came to earth as a man and as the curve progresses downward, this symbolizes his sufferings. We've gone through some of these. Mocked, slandered, betrayed, beaten, spat upon, clothes torn up, and finally dying death on a cross. But we know this isn't the end of the story. Christ died, but as Peter tells us, through his resurrection, he's gone up into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, powers having been subjected to him. So this chart kind of maps out the life of Christ. And for the Christian, This should also map out our experience. If we live a life like Jesus, or as Peter says, if we are zealous for what is good, we will suffer. We'll be slandered, we'll be mocked, we will experience abandonment, we may even face physical suffering at some point. And in this suffering, we enter into the suffering of Christ. And ultimately in this life, we will suffer to the point of death. Death is never fun Death is never exciting. Death is always painful. It's always difficult. But in this death, we enter into the death of Christ. And just as Jesus died and rose again, we will again rise with Christ. For those who trust in Christ, who confess their sin, believe that he's Lord, we're promised that we will indeed rise up and be with Christ for all of eternity. And this is why baptism represents a union with Christ in his suffering in his death, and ultimately in his resurrection. And this is why Paul said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He's modeling this for us. He's saying, hey, if I live, I live with Jesus alongside me. If I suffer, I suffer with Christ alongside me. If I die, I die with Christ because I know that I'll rise with him. Now, I realize you might be looking at this and saying, Nathan, like, this is great. Like, yes, I'm going to be resurrected, but like, This is also kind of depressing. Like you're telling me, like, life starts here. It's just a downward spiral of suffering until I die. And in a way, I'm kind of saying that because life is hard. Life does involve much hardship and suffering because we know that this world is a broken place. It's not as it's meant to be. But there is also a micro way that we can apply this J-curve to help make it make sense on a day to day. And this is where I want to end our time today. So let's say that there is a rumor spreading about you at work. Um, This is something that you know you didn't do. Someone got talking, things spread around as things do, and all of a sudden you're the talk of the whole workplace. Um, Your boss pulls you in and eventually says, hey, we're we're just going to have to let you go. None of this was actually proved or substantiated in any way, but they just decided they couldn't have this drama floating around and it would be much easier to just fire you, wipe their hands clean, and move on and actually deal with the problem. Now, you have a couple of options. You could throw a fit. You could you know, flip your desk over on the last day, delete all the files that the company needs. Um, you could you know, leave and immediately file a lawsuit. And you'd probably be justified legally in doing all that because you were slandered. You were accused of something you didn't do. You were betrayed by people you're supposed to trust. Or... You could choose to enter into the sufferings of Christ. You could choose to enter into the slander that he endured, the accusation that he faced, the betrayal that he endured. But we also know that after this suffering comes resurrection. And while I do think there are good earthly blessings for um, being faithful, that God provides to his people this resurrection is not always going to be, well, you got fired, you're going to get a job that pays double next week. I think God can do that. I think God does do that. But to look at what this resurrection looks like in this micro scale, I want to go back to 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. He says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So your mini resurrection in this situation is the refining of your character. In suffering alongside Christ you'll come out of the other side knowing him better and loving him better you will look at the intense emotion that you faced while being slandered and understand better the agony that Christ faced upon the cross. So I hope that this week, as you're thinking through this, as you're thinking through your suffering, you can think through, man, how can this thing that I'm suffering help me understand and know Christ better? So two questions to consider as we wrap up. One, are you suffering for doing good? And this is the evaluation of, hey, are you suffering at all? Should you be? Are you even putting yourself in the situation where you may be slandered for your faith? Or are you just avoiding that all together? And the second question, are you viewing your suffering as union with Christ or punishment from Christ? Oftentimes, our inclination is to think, well, if something bad is happening to me, I must have done something to deserve it. But what Peter does for here is he reshapes that whole thinking. He sees suffering as a privilege in some ways because you get to enter into the suffering of Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father, I pray for those in this room who are experiencing suffering even right now. God, I pray that they would be comforted by you. But ultimately, Lord, I pray that what they are experiencing would refine their character, would unify them with Christ, that they would be able to better understand and love their Savior because of the suffering that he endured on their behalf. And Father, for those who Life is great right now. <laughs> They're not facing much suffering or opposition. God, I pray you would prepare them. I pray they would comfort their brothers and sisters who are suffering and I pray that, that, that they would ready themselves to face opposition for their faith and that they would be willing to love those who might oppose them. God, I thank you for this picture of the gospel. It, it tells us that you don't waste anything even the things that to us seem wasted, even suffering that just seems like just completely out of the picture, like nothing good can come from this. I'm thankful that you take broken things and make them new, both in our sufferings and with us. Lord, walk alongside us as we suffer and draw us closer to you through it. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.